Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Hello, and welcome to Owl Explains, and this our final Hootenanny of 2022 on today's question, how can Web3 protect speech? My name's Emma Pike, I'm your host for today's conversation. And for anybody new to Owl Explains, Owl Explains is a new initiative launched in October, which aims to further our collective understanding of blockchain and Web3 to help inform the very important conversations happening in the EU, in the US and elsewhere in the world about policy and regulation. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, which runs the Avalanche Protocol. And today I'm delighted to welcome Maria Bustios to explore with us the question of how can Web3 protect speech? So Maria is a journalist and an editor who has written a lot about blockchain and Web3 going back quite a few years. And actually going back even further, she was already thinking and writing about the internet in the 1990s during the, the dot-com era. So she's seen all the twists and turns of Web 1, 2 and 3 as a journalist and can offer a really broad perspective. Um, but her journalism is really just the start of her experience and expertise in this space because she's also an entrepreneur and the founder of two editorial initiatives. One is a culture magazine, Popular, and the other is Brickhouse Cooperative, which is a journalist-owned news platform. Both Popular and Brickhouse employ blockchain technology, so I think it's true to say that Maria is really quite a pioneer in terms of using blockchain technology to promote and defend independent journalism. And I can't think of a better person to explore our theme today of how can Web3 protect speech. Hi, Maria. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Emma. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. How are you? <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm very good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having Absolute me. Absolute pleasure to have you. So um, I'm sure that everybody wants to hear more about Popular and Brickhouse specifically. Um, but before we get into talking about those two initiatives, I just want to ask you about your journey into blockchain and crypto and Web3 and everything. When was it that you first became interested in this space? And when did you start realizing the potential of, of blockchain and crypto? When we started talking about this earlier, I was curious to find out exactly. So I went back to my email and discovered an email I wrote in May of 2011 to my husband, who's a retired Wall Street analyst, like super brain. And the email says, this is a thing I want you to explain it to me. And so it, that was when I first started at really kind of getting into it. But even back then, it was wildly risky as well. It was about a thousand times harder to buy. You had to be wiring money through Western Union and all this kind of stuff. And it was just a sort of experimental technology that I was really interested in as somebody who sort of loved computers. Um, but, it, you know, what really intrigued me from the beginning was the idea of tamper-proof shared archives. And I've actually never changed my mind about that, like not 
since way back then. I kind of kept up with the news throughout and was developing my ideas about it. And then um, my close colleague, Matt Buchanan, was editing a tech science vertical at The New Yorker, and this is in early 2013. And he asked me, you know, come write something we do want to write about. And I said, oh, oh, Bitcoin, definitely. He's like, what? And I'm like, no, really, I swear to God, this is going to be like a thing. So it was a complete coincidence, but very shortly before we went to press on that story, a, a huge story broke about the banking crisis in Cyprus uh, at the beginning of 2013. And it had emerged that the EU and the IMF and European central banks had a had developed a plan whereby Cyprus would solve its uh, banking crisis by subjecting the bank accounts of every single citizen in the country to like a 6% haircut or something like this. And so they had a new president, Anastasiadis, who had announced this plan and the country went nuts. And in the event, you know, the smaller depositors were saved in a bailout. But, um, you know, this this whole bailout was like 10 billion euro or something like that. Anyway, over that weekend, um, because of fears that uh, Southern Europeans had that they might be in for the same treatment, the price of Bitcoin shot up like almost double over that weekend right before the piece came out. So we wrote about it. And um, it was seen then as a potential way of shielding funds from, you know, potential government shenanigans. And so I kind of entered in on the research side based on that. Right. That's so interesting. Um, so and uh, I think, you know, we've seen in, in other countries, aside from Cyprus as well, like, you know, Argentina, uh, another example of, you know, where there has been a serious banking crisis, there's been much higher adoption on the whole of blockchain, crypto and, and so on. But I also I just I also want to ask you how um, what prompted you to consider the potential for blockchain and crypto and what it could do for journalism specifically? Yeah, I, I think it's really important for people to uh, to know just like really quickly with respect to the previous point, like there is so much about like, oh, it's a scam, it's a scam, it's a scam. But like, you know, places like Lebanon, you know, I mean, there's so many places in the world where the currency is in real trouble and, you know, including like El Salvador, there's been so much written about that where uh, people are subjected to these huge, you know, costs of moving money around. And it has been a huge, huge boon for people already. So I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, like if you're lucky enough to live in a country with a stable sort of banking system, that's not the case for everyone. So think about that. Anyway, with respect to journalism, I mean, you know, I'm a journalist who built my career online and therefore I'm extremely mindful of everything that has disappeared on us since I started, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago thinking about doing this and I mean anybody who publishes online could tell you the same thing so from the beginning the idea of tamper-proof archives was like extremely interesting to me more so like by far than the financial or sort of what I consider the casino aspects of it I mean you know there's there's legitimate reasons and crazy reasons just like there is with regular money I just sort of think of the entire thing as um uh, very similar to the record keeping systems that we already have inside and outside of like financial considerations. Anyways, this interest only grew as it became evident year by year of how fragile our digital libraries are, our records, the records of online publications, you know, just in terms of digital entropy by itself with like systems that like become obsolete or decay, you know, they degrade, publications fail, they're acquired. 
without the Internet Archive, for example, just an absolutely staggering amount of the history of the last 20 years would be almost completely irretrievable. So when Sybil came to me in 2017 with their plan for building a blockchain-based publishing platform, I was like completely all over it. And I have like literally never deviated from those goals. And when I was there, um, I helped plan and test an open source archiving tool based on work that had been done by a group of Chinese activists seeking to protect Me Too records from government censorship, just put it outside the reach of the government. And, you know, gas, like ETH gas then, as now, was prohibitively expensive, but these activists created a method whereby we could archive news articles not in the main transaction, but by using the notes field in order to save gas. So instead of costing like 50 or 80 bucks to archive a piece, we'd be able to do it for like very small money, like a few dollars. And uh, that was the culmination of a lot of years of planning and research. And it was just a, a really exciting thing to participate in. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and so I guess that that was a that was to sort of avoid the Chinese censorship then was to to log these Me Too related records on blockchain rather than anywhere else. Yes, it was an ETH-based system, and it was open source, and the engineers at Civil adapted that system for us and built a tool for all of the Civil publishers to use. And, like, I, you know, for those who might not understand how ETH works, there's, I guess at this point, there's probably 7,000 or 8,000 full nodes, I don't know, but, like, there are computers running all over the world constantly recording every transaction. But most transactions don't, you know, necessarily include text. They might just be like, you know, we're sending, we're sending tokens or we're signing a note or we're, you know, doing, you know, whatever kind of programming is built into the smart contract and so on. This particular system has um, um, a method for putting text into the actual ledger itself. So on Every single one of those 7,000 computers and anywhere online that keeps a, a lookup system, you know, like Etherscan or whatever, you can look up the transaction and there's a tool so that you can actually read the information. So like no matter what happens, you have to shut the internet down and even then those Chinese Me Too activists will have 7,000 copies at, at minimum, whatever copies of the ledger exist all over the world are safe. They can't, you know, be uh, erased or touched by anybody in the Chinese government who might like to to censor those records. And, and that's that's sort of the element of this thing that's been so attractive to me for so many years. So so moving on now to popular and Brickhouse co cooperative. Um, can you tell us a bit more about each of those initiatives and specifically how and why they use blockchain and crypto? Yes. Popula is the publication that I launched while I was working with Civil. The company had been funded by consensus with the idea of tokenizing journalism. That is like creating an entire economy around journalism. But the regulatory uncertainty, which was terrible uh, then as it is now brought on the crypto winter of 2018, right when there are plans to launch the token. And so the company collapsed. 
But Civil had funded some really great journalism startups, many of which have gone on to thrive using more conventional models like Block Club Chicago and Documented and the Colorado Sun. Um, there's a few of others, but there were a few of us who had launched publications and were looking to experiment with models based on um, preserving press freedom and, and serving the digital commons in various ways. And we banded together to form a journalist-owned cooperative, and that is Brickhouse. And we started publishing almost exactly two years ago. Um, it's a small organization, very unconventional, and Populous still publishing now under the editorship of Tom Skoka, like under the Brickhouse umbrella. And I am still working on developing all the same means of using blockchain-based technologies to secure archives and, and press freedom. Like right now, our tools are, uh, the tools that we built at Civil, uh, let me back up a second. The things that we were trying to accomplish at Civil there was a DAO there that was supposed to, um, like, secure the membership of all the all the members were supposed to do governance based on that DAO. I was never a big cheer, cheerleader for that to start with because I feel like a DAO can't really work unless you have a mature and and sort of cohesive. Uh, audience and engaged active group of people in a large one but like you know it was interesting an interesting experiment to participate in for sure but um the the parts of it that I was really interested in were uh Microtipping, which I've been interested in for a really long time since before I knew about blockchain, you know, projects like Flatter and and Flues and Beans and all that kind of stuff I was really interested in. This was like so much better uh, way to create a crypto economy for journalism. And the way I've always envisioned it is if you reach the end of a news article and you really love it and you can directly send the the author some money that starts to create like a um an economy and an environment for writing and journalism that is kind of analogous to like what royalties used to be in the music business so like say i write a piece like you know five ten years ago and like suddenly there's interest in, you know, an interview that I did or a subject that I wrote about and people come back to it or, it, you know, a piece gets a lot of play and it gets in a syllabus, you know, or a book and um, people can go and start to contribute a little bit of money. And, and so it's a, it's a way to compensate writers that um, maybe, you know, small revenue streams that can combine to produce a meaningful income, say in retirement, for example. Like, so micro-tipping to me, I see as like a, a sort of an, an analog to like, like I say, what royalties used to be in the, in the music business. And that way it's also easier for publications to stay ad-free and free of corporate and owner influence if we can create that kind of independent tokenized economy. The other thing that I that I developed um, myself and was really uh, really deeply into it's a little bit busted now, um, but I'm going to fix it again. At Popula was a commenting system uh, whereby only people who were um, paying subscribers of Popula could use the 
commenting system, which meant, you know, they have to commit like 50 bucks a year or whatever, thereby hugely limiting the potential pool of people who would be commenting and who thereby you would have to moderate. And then each comment would cost like the equivalent of five cents to post. And then the really interesting thing is anybody who posted a comment, that comment could also get micro tips. And so that way, you know, because I had been involved in a lot of communities early on in the internet, like at Gawker and the all where I really kind of made my bones as a journalist and these really vibrant, like intense communities where people were extremely, uh, you know, vivid personalities and great writers who would also be able to, you know, participate on a financial level, uh, who would be gaining something by being there and by writing and contributing, you know, so this is the other huge thing that I was really into those two things. And then archiving, um, those were my big projects. My colleague, David Moore, um, the, uh, founder and editor in chief of sludge had this really great ideas too around, um, microfunding. So like if you wanted to fund a particular story or if you wanted to like, you know, if a photographer needed a piece of equipment, he would be able to come on the site and say, okay, like almost sort of like GoFundMe, but a journalistic practice, you know, that would be under the umbrella of specific publications maybe or specific groups of publications. Right. Wow. So so micro tipping and micro funding. Um, it sounds like, you know, those things really uh, achieve quite a lot of fundamental change. I mean, you likened the micro tipping to royalties. You know, I think in the in the music sector, there's a sort of there's there's the royalty in terms of the sort of the financial reward, obviously, for the artist, but also this idea of creating a sort of more direct connection between artist and, and, and fan, or in your case, a journalist and, and, and reader. So the fact that, that a reader can actually pay a journalist directly and kind of express their appreciation, I think is also quite an important thing. Um, and then you mentioned also the editorial freedom that this micro-tipping um, uh, allows and ena enables. Um, I, I just want to uh, now just talk about how different that is from uh, the situation we have in Web 2, which is so characterized by these very, very big, very p powerful platforms. And we've seen long running tensions between those big platforms and news organizations specifically, where obviously the platforms can um, <clears throat> monetize news through ads uh, and news organizations say not nearly enough of that ad revenue trickles back to the journalists and news organizations that are actually generating the content in the first place. And then also they struggle mm. to compete, you know, their own subscription services can't really compete with those big platforms. So um, I just and then actually just today we've seen uh, that Meta, in response to moves by the US government to bolster the bargaining power of news organisations, Meta is now threatening to remove all news content from its social channels, which again just kind of speaks to the immense power of some of these platforms. And we've seen these tensions in the US, and but also in Europe, in Australia and elsewhere. So it, that feels like a really kind of classic Web 2 standoff. Do you think mm -hmm. in the world of Web, Web 3 and in the, the models that you are uh, creating, uh, do you think things could be different in, in Web3 then? So much so. I mean, think about this for a second, right? I think that this uh, the standoff is great, the meta standoff, because I think 
the real loser is going to be meta. People go to Facebook to see news, and when it's not there, they are going to go look for news elsewhere. You know, they are, I think, underestimating the degree to which they have depended on the dignity that legacy news gives their product. You know, when they've got like some kind of crazy QAnon uncle appearing in the same space alongside like, you know, the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, that makes the QAnon uncle seem less crazy. But like when those legacy media sort of behemoths are kind of off the site, then, you know, what does that do to the quality of discourse over there? And also, I think it's like really interesting and important to consider like in, in terms of the kind of um, models that we're trying to create and work on. I mean, think about this, right? If I'm a journalist who is dependent on Facebook, I mean, I we don't touch it at you know it's, it's and it's really you know harmful uh for a, a small new news organization like ours or you know journalistic organization like ours to sort of leave that traffic on the table but i mean i can't have anything to do with that thing anyway back to what we were saying about um the the direct connection if i have to depend on facebook for my traffic and and so many people drank from that poison chalice this huge amounts of money changed hands you know early on in this process then you know I, my my fate is kind of bound up in their success i have to kind of i'm 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 tied to them but like if i own the connections between myself and my audience like and this is what can happen when you somebody gives you a micro tip you have access to that person's wallet in terms of you know you can send them you can send them an airdrop of an article or an invitation you can send them a message you can create like a, a newsletter list just out of micro tips you know like this is a thing that i found really uh, inspiring that Josh Katz pointed out from Yellow Heart. He did that really cool project of the Kings of Leon LP that was released like as an NFT. I'm, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of nonsensical NFTs, but I think what they're doing there is really important. And um, he he made a deal with this band, and they raised like $2 million like by selling their, uh, you know, there were physical albums, LPs, there were downloads, there was artwork, their golden tickets where um, like, I think they cost, they wound up costing about $40,000 a piece and it kind of entitles you to over the course of a lifetime of the band in one city for each tour, you get four front row seats and a meet and greet with a band and a limo ride and all this stuff. So this huge sort of cornucopia of, of products and stuff that the band offered its fans directly. And it was really successful. But like, to me, the really important thing about the whole thing was they own those connections. You know, they can go to a new record label or they can, you know, start all kinds of projects just that don't have any sort of mediation, sort of institutional mediation, corporate mediation, label mediation, distributorships, nothing. It's just them and their fans. And and people have written and written and written about this. I think it's like it's difficult to grasp what that actually signifies for people in our position who are authors or musicians, you know, writers, whatever. We're so dependent on distributorships, so dependent on publishers. 
that like even a slight breakage of those like iron chains is going to really revolutionize culture and how it's preserved and how it's shared. Yeah, so interesting. So um, we've talked about the micro-tipping. Now, I'm also interested in the, the micro-tipping on the comments. So you mentioned five cents, was it, that you have to pay mm-hmm. in order to make a comment. Do you think mm-hmm. that, you know, that just even though it's only five cents, the very fact that you have to pay anything at all um, could potentially raise the level of debate in, the, in comments uh, because people sort of just have to think, even just for a couple of seconds, about what they're going to say if there's five cents payment attached. Do you think that's the case? Uh, The pause is very important, right? It's like just taking a minute to think for sure, do I really want to say this is really important? But I kind of, you know, when we came up with the system, the thing that almost, that interested me at least as much and maybe more is it's very difficult to create a bot army that is going to have to pay 50 bucks each for a subscription and then pay per comment. It's just really hard to automate. So like so many of the small publications that I've worked for have wanted to offer comment sections, but have been unable to uh, sort of shoulder the cost of, you know, the human attention that it requires to do it properly because, you know, there's all these sort of WordPress has all these utilities and stuff and, you know, spam filters and everything. And you have to have somebody watching that. Like you have to have a real live person watching it because real comments get sent to spam and the spam gets through and, you know, you'll get a writer very mad because they've got some advertisement for, you know, baldness pills or something (laughs) on their website on their on their piece you know so there's there's just this whole sort of world of of moderation and its costs and complexities that blockchain can just you know shatter like overnight if we design the systems right yeah and i think you're so right that this pause is incredibly important i'm kind of actually reminded my my daughter's old teacher who used to when talking to the kids about, uh, you know, social media activity, he'd kind of say to them, look, you know, in the olden days, if you wanted to say something, you wrote a letter, you know, so that took time. And then you had to get an envelope and a stamp. You had to walk to the post box to post the letter. And you had all this thinking time about what exactly you were going to say, whereas that thinking time is just gone. Um, So I think, you know, anything, five cents, fifty dollars, you know, just these sort of little bumps that you put in the way that make people reflect even just for a second about what it is they're going to say and how they want to say it perhaps means that there's less requirement for moderation in in the future um, anyway, if people are just a tiny bit more. Yeah, yes, it's optimizing. It's using technology to optimize for for humanity to 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 give people a chance to like actually have honest transactions and think about like how how to serve each other better it's possible to do that this is the thing that's been driving me so crazy about that chat gpt that people are so thrilled about it's like are you crazy it was like you know nobody's going to be homework ever again and i'm like okay let me look at this thing and it was like any editor would have sent this writer away with a flea in his ear so fast it's like there's there's like there's absolutely no evidence of a mind at work in any of this stuff. I have I have yet to see any any chat GPT like generated text that 
I that I would want to read because I mean, you know, you ordinarily you want to read something because like somebody starts out with an idea, they develop it, they they create a thread of of enlightenment and light and and energy and vividness, right? But like you can also use the machine to create a simulacrum of writing, but it's just like empty and hollow. And I just have found it really bizarre, like that, that, that isn't more evident to people. I think they should, there should be a contest and there should be a bunch of really great editors and they should test them all on whether or not, whether or not they can tell if it's a real piece or not. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even before we get into kind of GPT and, and all of that, you know, we are having this conversation on Twitter um, where, you know, the level of debate can be less than than great on occasion. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of the stage on which the tensions between absolute free speech and, you know, fairness, decency, balance, tolerance, moderated speech, if you like, are playing out. So do you think if 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 Twitter was decentralized and built on blockchain, do you think it, it could be a better better space? I think we can already see the beginnings of what is going to happen on Mastodon, which, you know, while it is not a blockchain-enabled system, is decentralized and ad-free. And I am having a ball on there um, because this is like also a moderation issue, right? Because on Mastodon, each server, each instance, you know, and, and Brickhouse is actually running an instance. It's called the life.boats um, in order to sort of experiment with it because, I've, you know, we've long been interested in these ideas. Each instance, each server is able to handle moderation its own way. So you might want a lot of control over what your members are exposed to, or you might want very little or none. You might want certain kinds of conversation to be completely expunged, and you're totally free to do that without bothering anybody on any of the other servers. So yeah, this is exactly what blockchain should be able to do for people, is to sort of, again, kind of like automate for uh, for for like a, a democratization of experience and communication and energy to uh, make space for many different approaches and to authenticate based on those sort of values. So yeah, absolutely. Blockchain can improve on the kinds of things that we're already seeing at Mastodon <clears throat> by like, you know, you could also introduce micropayments onto a system like that. You can provide all kinds of transparency and authentication features. You can create archiving. You can create like, you know, uh, all kinds of lists. And, you know, I'm I'm sort of kind of dreaming here about like all the different kinds of potential research facilities that you could create. Like at one time, Twitter talked about uh, putting its entirety of the fire hose at the Library of Congress. It, it wound up getting so huge that they dropped that project. But I mean, originally the Library of Congress had intended to make the whole of Twitter, the whole corpus searchable. And like, you would be able to do that in a blockchain-based system without facing the problems that the Library of Congress did uh, with respect to sort of copyright issues and people maybe not wanting to be involved in it and all this kind of stuff. Like, you can design a system 
that on the way in, you could make it like an opt-in system, for instance, where people who wanted their stuff archived for posterity, they could do that or or create like, you know, uh, spaces where that would be possible, like based on different interest groups. Like, I mean, honestly, the sky's the limit and it doesn't have to be commercially mediated. It can just be what people want and are willing to participate in and build and use together. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have to go. I'm gonna. Um, I'm inspired to go and uh, dip my toe back in Mastodon and see uh, uh, see what it's what it's like there. Um, so uh, we usually at the towards the end of our sessions, we ask our speakers to uh, recommend some further kind of places or materials um, that people can read or listen to or watch in order to learn a little bit more about this whole space. Um, so what would you recommend to our, our listeners? Um, my favorite reading on blockchain specifically that is a, um, a periodical is Coindesk. I've been a, a big fan of theirs and have written a few pieces over there over the years. It's, it's a really, and they're very undeceived. It's not like, you know, they're not in any commercial pockets and they're really good journalists. So I like that. Um, if you want sort of a broader uh, view, and I think people should have one of um, how sort of media and blockchain, I urge people to look into yellowheart.io, uh, really interesting project. It's it's music based, but um, <clears throat> the guy who runs it, Josh Katz, is a visionary and I'm, I'm very interested in seeing like his experiments, where they go, and then I think everybody who's interested in these issues should go to to go to Reddit and expose himself to like maximum insanity, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, kind of kind of soak up like all the kinds of things that people are saying because, like, I mean, some of it's crazy, but some of it's real and is going to work out and is going to happen and are you know represents the next step. So those would be my three. And off the top of my head. Great, thank you so much. And talking of talking of craziness, I think uh, I think it's fair to say that there's probably quite a lot of people in this space feeling a little bit glum or anxious, concerned about you know the, the crypto winter, FTX collapse, and so on. Um, you've kind of been around the block in terms of you know you were already actively analysing and writing about the internet back in the '90s. Dot com boom bust craziness was happening then as well, and yet. Uh, nevertheless, it did the web one did deliver you know, incredible innovation. So, do you have a perspective on on where we are right now with Web three and perhaps a kind of, uh, uh, without being too corny, a, a message of hope for people who might be feeling less than uh, upbeat right now? Yeah, completely. I wrote a piece like you know about this at um, an op ed at the New York Times like uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, in response to the what everybody's already forgotten, the Terra Luna collapse, we've, yeah. <laughs> we've, already, we've already had another disaster. I mean, neither of these huge disasters, and, and you know, it's bad and everything, but I mean, neither of them really kind of compares to the to Mount Gox, right? In terms of the amount of the actual sort of crypto ecosystem that collapsed in one go, um, so. It's not just that I've seen the the beginnings of the internet. That piece is particularly about having been involved in sort of internet 1.0 and 
seeing all the hope and promise of that, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, besieged by profiteers and, and scams and crazy people and enormous, like, frauds and you know, very similar to what we're seeing now. I mean, you know, what from Dread Pirate, like Dread Pirate Roberts was far from the first guy, right? But um, anyway, the the hope I have for uh, blockchain technology is that the same as it's been from the beginning. The technology is very separate from the scams, but it is just an institution like any other human institution that is always going to attract a greedy and scrupulous people to some degree, just like the internet did like back in the day. And now we have like an internet that is mature and has a lot of safeguards for people and has like beautiful lasting institutions in it that are people powered like Wikipedia and the internet archive and has like some really crazy stuff going on in it. Like, what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter, I mean, this is not going to end. You know what I mean? It's going to always be like this. There's always, the fight is never over, but there's always opportunity to make the next uh, sort of level to like get to the next level and, and, and continue the fight and create beautiful lasting things that will benefit people for the future. Great. Thank you so much. So the fight is never over people. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that's it for today folks um, and that is in fact our final boot nanny for 2022 so um, thank you so much to Maria for a fascinating and insightful uh, discussion um, and on behalf of the Al Explains team uh, Lee, Alter, Weeming, Andrina, Sylvia, Davide and Sarah everybody who's been working hard with Al Explains the last few months um, this Al would like to wish everyone a very good and happy holiday season. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hootful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.